the last chapter of the book of Acts. Can you say amen? Acts chapter 28, picking up in verse 17, will be the basis for our message today as I share a message that I've entitled, The Hope Has Arrived. As we look at Paul now finally on the scene in Rome, you see the Colosseum there in the image there in Rome and where Paul is at there now. And we're going to examine what does he do now that hope has arrived. And we will see that specifically in Acts 28 verse 20 where he tells them that he is the hope, that the message that he brings is the hope of all of Israel and all of the world for that matter. So I want to ask you as we get prepared for our message today, the definition What is hope? If we were to look at that, most people have a different understanding of what hope is, where they place their hope, what they may find their hope in, but the definition of hope is pretty clear. Hope is something, it's a desire with an expectant outcome to be obtained, something that we have, an expectant outcome with a confidence that it's actually going to happen. Right? We have a hope that the next round of golf, we're going to hit a lower score. Even in reality, we know that's probably not going to happen. There's a low hope that that's actually going to occur. We would call that aspirational hope, right? But what we have here in the gospel and the truth is real hope that has a real Savior by a real man, and his name is Jesus, the author and perfecter of our salvation. The hope with which Paul is going to Rome and which he is there now bringing this message now, if I had an image here, this is a kind of a nice, pretty photograph of, of hope. But what I hope you see is hope is connected to a key. And often in life, we go about life thinking certain keys open certain doors for us in life. Some put our hope in a college education, that it will be the key that unlocks the door to opportunity. Some put their hope in the key that that man or woman that they're going to marry is going to fulfill all their dreams, only to realize that didn't happen right? Amen? All right, my wife doesn't have to share her testimony right now. It's okay. Some put their hope in their job or their position to find out later on after they've been in it a little while, it still didn't feel the itch that Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes 3.11 as the, the God-sized void in our ho- ho- hearts where God placed the awareness of eternity for all times that can only be filled with Him. Some put their hope in their accounts, their retirement, or their savings, or their bank account, or their wallets. And some put their hope in other things, drugs, sex, destruction, whatnot. But here's what I would share with you in this image. I want you to understand that there truly is a key that unlocks all doors, and that key is faith, and the hope is Jesus. And when we have the key of faith, it unlocks the way Jesus described himself, I am the door. And if anybody knocks, I'll open it. I'll knock, he'll open and he'll come in and he will dine with you and with me. Jesus truly is the key. Faith is the key. Jesus is the hope. And I want to share with you as we read together in these verses of scripture, just what we see is Paul is bringing this five hope principles for life's journey that I believe we can take from this message. So let's get together and let's open Acts chapter 28, verse 17. If you are there in that scripture, say amen. 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 We'll pick up reading what the Word of God tells us. We believe in the sufficiency and the inerrancy of scripture. So let's pick up and we'll read together verses 17 through 22. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people... Or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. 
And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of edification. We thank you for the scripture. Lord, I pray that you open our minds and our hearts to receive it, to understand, to comprehend, and to discern the truths that are found here. How do we apply this in our daily life? How do we seek the hope that not only was for all of Israel, but the hope, the key of faith that unlocks the door of our hope in Christ Jesus? We thank you for this. Have your way in the service. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there's a few things of those five I want to share with you. Number one, as we look at verses 17, we see that hope requires leadership. Now, what was going on in verse 17 of this passage? Paul had gathered together. Now, notice who he gathered. Paul didn't go to Rome to have an evangelistic service, put up a tent, or go into the Colosseum and start proclaiming the truth to everybody. Paul was very strategic in his focus because he knew he had a specific audience that Jesus had told him in Acts chapter 23 that you would also be my witnesses in Rome, just as you had been in all of Asia Minor, and planting the churches from Antioch to Ephesus all over his missionary journeys. But now he would go to Rome, and what's he do when he gets there? He calls together the local leaders. Now, when you look in the Greek text, you'll understand that these leaders are defined as people that were ranking above all others. Most of them had some form of an important status. They were influencers in their community, influencers in the synagogues in Rome. One theologian says it this way, they estimate that the the number varied between 20,000 and 50,000 Jews that were in Rome at this time. Some inscriptional evidence, meaning some writings that we have been able to find, suggest that there were at least 11 different synagogues by AD 60. But yet they had no central organization that oversaw all the various synagogues that were there in Rome. Now, if you remember, Paul had written a letter three years before titled The Letter to the Romans, his epistle to the Roman church. He had not yet been able to get there and visit them, but he desired to do so earnestly. So when he gets there, he shows up and he's greeted. In the last chapter we saw, in the last few verses we saw, he was greeted by other brothers that had met him along the way and proceeded with him into Rome. And now he's there and he calls forth these leaders. These leaders are influencers in their community, influencers amongst people of faith, fellow brothers who were leading through the Torah, through the scriptures. And they were influencing the lives of people. And Paul wanted to get to the heart of the matter and share with them. He had no ill towards the Jews despite their wrongdoing or their being wrong on an incomplete theology. He was not forsaking the things of old that he makes clear when he says, Brothers, I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. He wasn't saying we need to throw out the baby with the bathwater. He was saying, let me tell you about the, the fullness of what has happened in Christ Jesus. Even though he was delivered as a prisoner from his people, he still had a heart for proclaiming the truth of what Jesus had done for him and what he desired to do for all 
of the nations. So let me share with you four principles for how do we evaluate the hope that leads us. If these leaders in the Jerusalem church and the synagogues were leading their people in a certain way, what could we expect out of leadership that leads us in the church of Christ? So I'm going to give you four things to help us as a church and any church out there for matter. I believe if you apply these principles, you will be the very church that Christ calls the bride of Christ, led in a way that leads you in the right directions. Number one, I think it's important that you examine your pastors against Scripture. How do we evaluate the leadership of our church? Well, let's go to Scripture. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 tell us exactly what our pastors are supposed to be. Verses 8 through 12 go on to talk about those who serve the church in the role of diaconate, the deacon. But verses 1 through 8 speak specifically to the characteristics, the qualities, the blamelessness of that man who leads in the elder or the episkopos, the presbytoi, the shepherd, pastor. All those words are synonymous in those scriptures. In Titus chapter 1, to this young man that is now on the island of Crete establishing the church, Paul gives him instructions as well about finding men, and he gives them 19 qualifications in verses 5 through 9 of what these men are supposed to be like and how they are to lead the church. And then Peter wonderfully comes in. Remember Peter, right? He was the blameless disciple. He was the, the spotless apostle. Never failed at all. Right? We know that's not the case. Isn't it wonderful that God uses broken people to do his work? You think about that concept for a minute. Why does God choose to use broken men and women like Peter, who walked with Jesus all that time, who saw all the miracles, who was there with them on the Mount of Transfiguration, who heard God speak through the clouds, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, who saw Elijah and Moses and God in his face transfigured, bright, shining bright as the sun. That Peter, who rebukes Jesus, curses, the scriptures say, when he was on trial, says, I don't know that man. I'm not one of his disciples. Leave me alone. Isn't it wonderful that God uses the broken, not the perfect, to do his will? And isn't it wonderful how when we recognize our brokenness and the grace of our Savior and his love, how it makes us accomplish even more after our recognition of brokenness than before. Because that's the God that we serve. Peter is there with him, and Peter writes this about the pastors. He reminds them in those five verses to not lord it over those that you're leading, but to love them as Christ loved the church. To not do it out of compulsion, not to do it for greed or wealth or profit, but to do it because God has called them to that role and position. But secondly, we also as a church can evaluate how we're being led by our people, believe it or not. The Scripture tells us to examine our people against Scripture. If you go back one slide, you'll see the verses to it. James chapter 4, verses 7-8, through 8, the Apostle James tells us to submit ourselves unto God and resist the devil and he'll flee from us. And when we do that, that's exactly what happens. But notice the first part of God's people have to submit themselves unto God. Resist the, the devil and he will flee. Often we read that last part of that verse, but we forget the first part where God says, submit ourselves unto God and he'll flee from us. In Romans chapter 12, the, the writer here, Paul, tells us to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We as the people of God are an outward projection of what Christ is doing in our life to others as they see that. And then Hebrews 13, 17 reminds us to obey our leaders for those will give a, an account for your souls. 
how we respond to the way God's leadership in our churches lead us and how we cooperate and work together as the people of God. So we examine our pastors, we examine our people, but thirdly, we've got to examine our practices. How do we examine them? We examine them against Scripture. Scripture gives us the role model for everything that a church should be all about. Now, it's not prescriptive like a doctor would prescribe you a medicine. If you had an ailment, you had an illness, you had shingles, you had whatever there was, the doctor may give you a prescription for that to help you get over it, and you're to take it specifically this many times a day for the duration of that medication and then stop taking it. That doctor is going to prescribe to you exactly how he wants you to get well. Now, there are prescriptive items in Scripture that we see. Sometimes in the Baptist church, we even call two of those things the ordinances. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me and the issue of baptism. Those are the two of, the, of several prescribed things that Jesus specifically tells us to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's prescriptive. God has commanded us to do that. It's not suggestive. And then there are other things that are descriptive, that give us a range of how we could do something. God didn't give us prescription on how to order our service in our church. God leaves that us to us. But he definitely tells us that in your worship of him, we should be praising and singing with a new song, as the psalmist would write in Psalm 150 to praise and to worship, to fellowship, to koinonia. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42, he gives us the description of the prescription that is going on there. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. I mean, there's four specific things that the early church, the devoting of the apostles' teaching, meaning the reading of Scripture. We could call that Sunday school. We could call that home Bible study. We could call that small group. We could call that a lot of things, but what's happening is we are devoting ourselves to the Word of God in our daily reading. We're fellowshipping with one another. The family of God, the oikos theos, gathering together as the ecclesia, the assembly of the saints in fellowship. I don't know about you, but when you came here today, were you encouraged by somebody? Did somebody hug your neck or shake your hand or cough on you? Yes. That, that, that encourages us all, right? Right? We love it when that all happens. It happens. That's the fellowship of the body of Christ. It's a different fellowship than when I got coughed on in Walmart. Okay? It's just different, isn't it? Someone hugs you in Walmart, if you don't know them, you're a little skeptical. But here, we expect that in the body of Christ. And then the breaking of bread together, the sharing in meals, we do that corporately on Wednesday nights and sometimes on special occasions throughout our, our church year. We break bread together in fellowship, not just communion, where we do this in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, but we do it in fellowship because we're doing life together. That was the principle. And then in Acts chapter 1-8, the, the prescription, if you will, that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and that we would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Ju Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. God tells us these things specifically. So when we examine our pastors, our people, our practices against Scripture, we know that we're being led in the right direction, that our church is healthy and vibrant and moving. But lastly, we've got to examine what I call our progress. Our progress. What do you mean progress, pastor? If we always do what we've always done, we'll always be where we've always been. Amen? But we've got a pro proclamation that God says, I will build my church. And if you ever notice all of the church growth that happens biblically was not addition, it was multiplication. 
Now, when we multiply, we love to see our bank account multiply, don't we? We love to see numbers grow exponentially. But adding one or two here and there, sometimes it doesn't seem like it's making that big of a difference. Here's what God says that our progress is supposed to be about. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus reminds his disciples as they're all bound up over anxiety and worry and issues and all this stuff, God says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see, Jesus says if our, practice, if our progress, if we keep everything in perspective the way it's supposed to be, then our progress would be fulfilling the will of God, to seek first the kingdom of God in everything we're doing. Not our kingdom, not our kingdom, but his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you. What a beautiful thing when we look at the principles of how we as a church are led. That's the hope and the required leadership that Paul was wanting to give to these elders as they came, these, these rabbis as they came leading their synagogues. He wanted them to understand those things of how to lead properly with the hope that is found in Jesus. But number two, hope requires examination. Hope requires an examination of what goes on. Look with me in verses 18 and 19. Picking up in verse 18. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Now, again, this is Paul speaking with those leaders that had come, those elders that were there, the, the Jewish leaders. And he's saying, hey, you don't know this, obviously, so let me tell you what was going on. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for my death penalty, for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Paul's conveying a few truths that are, we see here about this hope that he had. Number one, that there was no liberty to be found in man. Notice he says here, they wish to set me free. That's the other word for liberty in your text. Something Paul realized that the Roman authorities, that the Jewish synagogue, and that many of us today still struggle with is the fact that when we are in Christ... We are free indeed. You see, Paul wasn't bound. He already knew that he was already free in Christ. He didn't need their liberty, even though they desired to do it. He says, no, no, I've got to do what Christ has already called me to do. I know I'm already a free man. I'm no longer bound by the law. I'm no longer bound by my sin. Paul, in that Damascus Road experience, had such a radical transformation and listen to me, church, when we have a transformation at all with Jesus, it's every bit of radical in every person's life. There is no non-radical transformation when you come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us that if anyone is in Christ, he therefore is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Folks, every decision to accept Christ is radical, and it makes you new and a new creation. And indeed, we are free. We can't find liberty in man. The judge may say not guilty. The lawyers may get you acquitted. The fine may get canceled. But at the end of the day, we're still bound by our sins and transgressions. Until we've repented of those sins, Christ truly sets us free. Psalmist Psalm 103 reminds us that as far as the east is from the west... The love of Christ has set us free. Our sins are gone, never to be brought back up again. 
There's never a file. There's nothing that they're going to be able to go and find and pull out a folder that says, aha, look what you did way back then, right? No, that's your wife keeps that one. Jesus doesn't have one of those, right? Your boss may keep that file. You may experience that every time you're dealing with a coworker. They always bring up the past. Folks, Jesus doesn't do it. Let me tell you who brings up the past in your life. The devil brings up your past. If you're saved in Christ Jesus, what great victory he has over a, over a saint to create doubt in your mind, to make you relive those sins of your past. Folks, Jesus doesn't hold those against you. You've been acquitted of those issues. Satan brings them up to make you doubt your salvation in Christ Jesus. But secondly, there's no escape from death found in man. There's nothing we can do, not even all of those who search for the wonderful fountain of youth. There's nothing. Last time I checked, the certainty is absolute certain that every man will die. The Hebrew writer would point it this way. It is appointed once for man to die, and then judgment. He'd also go on to say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, we all have that day coming where we will draw our last breath. Some sooner than others. I was listening to Dr. Adrian Rogers talking about the second coming of Christ and the eschatological events and when that's going to happen in the rapture and all the wonderful things that Scripture talks about with those things. But here's the truth for all of us, whether we believe that Jesus is going to come tomorrow or the next day or when and the sign of the times is getting wicked and we believe it's going to happen any moment. Here's what I know for certain. The moment I draw my last breath, I will be in the very presence of Jesus. The moment you draw your last breath, you will be in the presence of Jesus. And there's two things that we can expect to happen. We will either hear one thing, if we have no faith, if we have never placed our hope in Christ, if hope has never arrived in our life in the way by the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we can expect to hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. Or we can expect to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome into your master's rest. Those are the two things that will happen when we draw our last breath. So there is no liberty found in man. Freedom is truly found in Christ. There is no escape from death found in man. We have eternity in Christ. Did you know when eternity begins for the believer? You think about this, in our perspective of worldly, tangible, see, feel, touch, all the senses God has given us, we often miss the fact that, did you know that your eternity began the moment you accepted Jesus? That was the starting point on your timeline. It's not when you die and that begins your eternity. You are being transformed into the likeness and image of Christ. And it will be even greater when you're in his presence. Our eternity begins the moment we have accepted Christ. Isn't that wonderful to know? I've already started that journey. It's not something I've got to wait for it to happen. God's using me now and revealing him to me and to others so we can understand and be prepared for what we're going through. To be dealing with for all of eternity. Folks, this is, you ever go to a high school pep rally? Y'all love those? Right before the football season kicks off, the coach comes in, and the whole school comes together in the auditorium, and there's all kinds of silliness going on, right? To get us all fired up so we can, as the home team, just wear the other team out. Just a great spirit of encouragement so we know what to prepare ourselves for on Friday night. Folks, you know what that's like? That's, that's the life of the believer. 
every Sunday, every time we gather, every time we open God's Word. It's like the pep rally preparing us for the eternity that we will spend with God in heaven, on the new heaven and the new earth, in doing the things God's created us for, not strumming a harp on a cloud. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture, I promise you. We will be employed, taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, the very reason God created you and I was to have dominion over all of the earth, to do it, and to be in fellowship with Him. You know, heaven is going to be the completion of what God set out to do in Genesis chapter 1, where in heaven we will walk for all eternity in that perfect union without sin, the way God walked with Adam and woman in the Garden of Eden before the fall. That's what heaven's going to be like. So can we expect to till the ground? I think biblically we can. Can we expect to plant and harvest and have responsibilities and jobs? Absolutely, I believe we can. It won't be strumming on a cloud. It'll be hoeing the ground. It'll be drinking from the streams of life. We'll be eating from the fruits from the 12 different trees that bear their fruit at 12 different months and different types of fruit every time. And I believe there will be pizza in heaven. That's just my thought. I don't have a biblical basis for that, but I think it will be there amongst all the good food. I sure hope so. Uh, but without the side effects. Amen? What a wonderful thing. But hope does require an examination in our life. Point number three on our hope issue is we see that there's no justice found in man. And point number four is the fact that there's no guilt found in Christ. No guilt found in Christ. When we give Christ our life, when we surrender to Him, we truly have freedom indeed. But thirdly, let me turn our attention to verse 20. Look with me at verse 20, and this is kind of the the crux of the entire passage here that we're looking at. Why did Paul have to go to Rome? He tells us here in verse 20, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Paul would write about it in Romans. He would talk about how Israel in the end days will be saved, and how the Gentiles are being grafted in now. But Paul's love for his brothers was he, matter of fact, when he was first converted, the very first thing Paul does after the Damascus Road conversion, the Bible tells us he ate, drank, and when he had regained his strength, he immediately went to the synagogues and proclaimed Christ Jesus. Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, from the tribe of Benjamin, loved his fellow brothers. He loved Israel, and he wanted the leaders there to know of the hope for Israel, which was Jesus Christ. And it was for Christ's sake he was wearing these chains. There's four biblical proclamations that we can see. There's many more, but I'm going to give you four biblical proclamations that we see about hope as we examine this, as we look at the hope that was proclaimed throughout Scripture. The first one was a promised hope that was proclaimed. We find it in Genesis chapter 12, where God promises to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, plural, that his offspring and his siblings would outnumber the stars of the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. There was a hope promised to Abraham that would come through Christ Jesus, that not only Israel, but also Jew, Gentile, would be grafted together in the hope of Jesus Christ. But there's also a reasoned hope that we have there that Isaiah 118 reminds us. The prophet Isaiah, who's talking to the people, hearing from God, and he tells them, Come and let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And though they are red and like crimson, they shall become. See, this was a present tense proclamation of what was going to happen. A reasoned hope that we need to understand the Scriptures. This was the hope that Paul was proclaiming to these very Jews who knew the Old Testament law. Who knew the promise to Abraham. But yet they still didn't comprehend who the Messiah was. And they were still asking Paul to explain this sect, this people of the way, these, as they would later be called in Antioch, these Christians. Explain to me what this is all about. They still didn't get it, but yet they knew the law. They knew the Old Testament. They understood the Torah, the Mishnah, all those things. You ever scratch your head sometimes by folks that profess Christ that you assume they know the Scriptures? But man, they're acting in a complete different direction from what Scripture tells us. They're doing something completely different than what Scripture admonishes us to do. I wonder, how, how can that be if you know the truth? Sometimes we've got to explain it. God was explaining through the prophet Isaiah of a reasoned home. Come and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. You ever try to get a stain out of something? You buy the best stain stick there is. You get the bleach, and you try to hide it before your wife comes home and finds out about it, right? And you pour too much bleach, and it just eats the fabric away, and there's a big hole now, right? Folks, there's stains we can't even remove ourselves and the things that we've made. You drop something on the floor, you break a tile, or you stain the carpet, and you realize, oof, I shouldn't have done that. That's going to be expensive. And some things we just can't even repair. We've got to throw it out, replace it. See, our sin makes us that way. Our sin in God's eyes and a holy and righteous God, when we have sinned, and for all have sinned, none are, none are good. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we inherited from our brother, brother Adam. Right? We inherited sin in our nature. It's part of who we are. You ever notice you don't have to teach a toddler how to do something wrong? You don't have to teach them how to take a toy from a sibling or how to hit them in the head with another Tonka truck. It just comes naturally for some reason, right? Boy or girl, it doesn't matter. It's natural. It's part of our nature. I don't have to plant weeds in my garden. They just come from somewhere. I know I've tilled the garden. 